0: For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion.
1: My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis.
0: I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things.
1: You talk about revolution in 68. No, we make the revolution before.
0: Can we just go back to making really beautiful clothes with a soul? and minimise the waste and think a little before we we make things and bring back the value. Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is
1: in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision-maker. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. (laughs) This month is Pride Month. June was chosen to commemorate New York's Stonewall Uprising that sparked the modern gay rights movement 50 years ago now in June 1969. Today, Pride is all about celebrating the LGBTQIA community. It's a movement that celebrates sexual and gender diversity, or it should be, but it actually must continue to protest about discrimination and violence too. Because the rights of our beautiful queer community are still under attack. their human rights to be who they are, to love who they like, and to be treated with dignity and equality. Now I'm recording this on June the 11th, just before I hop on a plane tomorrow, but the show will go live next week in the run-up to the big Pride 19 celebrations and March that will happen at the end of the month in New York and elsewhere. But the news right now is not full of Grace Jones being announced as a headline act and all of the wonderful work that's been done to progress equality and diversity in our world. No, it's actually full of some disappointing, confronting and frankly frightening headlines. In Trump's America, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who is an evangelical Christian, by the way, has barred US embassies from flying the rainbow flag on flagpoles this Pride month. And in case you're wondering, it wasn't always thus. Obama let US embassies fly the Pride flag. In fact, he lit up the White House in rainbow colours when the Supreme Court legalised same sex marriage in 2015. But this is the really scary one. On Monday, the Vatican released a 31-page document challenging modern conceptions of gender identity titled Male and Female, He Created Them. This document defines gender as binary and it suggests that anything else is, and I quote, a move away from nature. I mean, seriously, no wonder people are upset. (laughs) Have we learnt nothing? I mean, this rubbish plays into the hands of intolerant conservatives and fosters a culture of fear and its timing is gross. No wonder people feel threatened and upset and attacked. But perhaps we might use this moment to foster that empathy for which the church apparently stands and yet so clearly lacks. We might listen, we might learn, we might grow and share and be there for our fellow humans without discriminating. I think this week's interview will go some way towards helping us do that. I bet you want to share it with everyone you know. It's such a fabulous and warm and fascinating interview. It's with the brilliant writer and trans woman, Professor Jennifer Finney Boylan. She is the author of She's Not There, A Life in Two Genders, a memoir, and about fifteen other books. She's prolific. She's also a New York Times columnist. But that memoir, it's an amazing record of her life and her transition, of her relationships and her experience. It's by turns hilarious and deeply moving. She talks about having a sense of her soul being female when she was a child called Jim. So right from the start. And there's a scene when her mother is ironing Jenny's father's shirts. And her mother says, someday you'll be wearing shirts like this. And Jenny writes, I listened to her strange words as if they were in a language other than English. I didn't understand what she was getting at. She never wore shirts like that. Why would I ever be wearing shirts like my father's? Since then, she writes, My awareness that I was in the wrong body, living the wrong life, was never out of my conscious mind. Never. Although my understanding of what it meant to be a boy or a girl was something that changed over time. Jenny serves on the Board of Trustees for PEN America, the Writers Association. For a long time, she was also the co-chair of GLAD's Board of Directors. She was also a member of the Board of Trustees of the Kinsey Institute for Research on Sex, Gender and Reproduction. And she provided counsel for the TV series Transparent and I Am Kate. <laughs> now, I Am Kate, of course, is all about Caitlyn Jenner but that's nothing. Jennifer Boylan's big TV moment was on Oprah, and you're going to hear all about that. Now, I met Jenny in Hobart, and I pounced on her backstage and invited her onto the podcast, and she was so generous and gracious and awesome, and I'm just really grateful to her for sharing her story with us. Let me know what you think. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Press. and please share this episode if you find it valuable. Now, let's get to it. Jennifer, thank you so much for agreeing to do this impromptu. We're recording this in Hobart, where we've both been part of Dark Mofo. Yesterday, you gave such a fantastic opening to a debate session, which was titled, I think, something like, Is Identity the New Religion? I wonder if you might just recap that story that you told. It's in the book about when you came across your Grammy with Hilda. They're playing gin.
0: Yeah, so this was when I was a child, uh, in the 60s, sometime, and uh, um, as my grandmother and her friend Hilda Watson, who was from North Yorkshire, were, as I like to say, playing gin and drinking vodka. And Hilda was deaf, or very near, near, nearly deaf, very hard of hearing. And so, most of the time, when she was aware she was being spoken to, she would make a sound kind of like a guinea pig, like this, whoop, whoop,
1: whoop, whoop. <laughs> which you can't and, do in a Yorkshire accent.
0: Yeah, no. So, I came back from the beach, and I saw... And they were listening to um, The Zombies on the radio, that old song, uh, She's Not There. And, uh, you know, it's too late to say you're sorry. And I asked them, why are are you listening to WFIL, which is the radio station? Like rock. Yeah. And my grandmother leaned in and said, shh, she thinks it's classical. (laughs) So... You know, I tell that story uh, for a number of reasons. For one, that phrase, she's not there, is one that threads its way through my memoir, which has that same title. Um, But I also use it because I feel it's a way of showing the way that our sense of self can be mistaken, that... um, some of the things we think we know are in fact things that we don't know, or things that have yet to reveal themselves to us. And it's also a story that I tell because it gets a laugh sometimes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I used to think it was very funny until about four years ago I lost most of my hearing. Mm -hmm. And so now when I tell that story I think about the fact that you know, I was kind of laughing at the fact that someone was hard of hearing, which only shows that It's easy to think of people as comical rather than as people who deserve compassion when whatever it is that they're suffering from is a thing that you don't think you have to be concerned with. And I think transgender experience is like that for a lot of straight or cisgender people. There's a sense of trance, like, that's just too weird. You know, I can't be bothered with that. This looks as one more goddamn thing I have to think about. And so if I'm not going on too long here it's the question of the moral imagination which Mm. means that the way we live in the world has to do with our ability to imagine the lives of people who are not ourselves
1: which is so profound and so important but that story is couched in humor which can be such a great way to break the ice and to break through and also you do that so cleverly and confrontingly in your writing, and I'm thinking about another story that's in, she's not there, where you talk about how killing yourself was on your to-do list when you were young. And then you tell a story about being in Nova Scotia and thinking, I could live here.
0: Yeah, well, I thought I, thought, uh, I went to Nova Scotia in my 20s. I'm not sure I decided I was going to kill myself when I set out, but I kept going farther and farther north and thinking... What am I going to do about this whole transgender thing? Because it's just wrecking my life, and I can't not be trans. I can't not have the sense of self. But I also thought, if I do come out as trans, I'll lose everything. Mm-hmm. So I drove up from Baltimore on the east coast of the United States, up way up to Nova Scotia, um, to Cape Breton, and uh, I remember thinking, well, I could just move here. You know, I could just. Uh, start life over again as a woman and uh and tell everybody that I'm Canadian and then I remember thinking oh no no one will ever believe that I'm Canadian (laughs) boom
1: (laughs) I do love it um we're gonna share some links for you to buy the book um Jennifer's written many, many novels, but her memoir, She's Not There, A Life in Two Genders, which I've just bought and just been diving into, is just phenomenal. And we sell some links to buy it. But when I asked you, ambushed you backstage yesterday and asked you to come on this podcast, Jenny, you said to me, well... Sure, but I don't really think too much about fashion, I'm paraphrasing, but you said something like, I'm not really that excited about fashion or clothes. Yeah. And yet it struck me reading the first early pages of your memoir that clothes loom very large as tokens, as moments of, I guess, visual signifiers of what you're going through and what you're seeing.
0: Well, that's it. And, and the question is, um, is that what we mean when we talk about fashion? Mm. And for me, it was a way, when I was, back when I was a boy and I dressed as a girl, it was a way of making the thing that I felt on the inside visible on the outside mm. badly off in many cases because, you know, the, the clothes that I, w- I would wear were not clothes that fit me very well or else that, you know, I I would... They were not clothes that were particularly designed for me.
1: I mean, um, you also talk about kind of creeping around, sneaking around, borrowing your mother's Oh, yeah, I'd have to steal clothes from
0: my sister or my mother, and it was, it was nasty. And also, I didn't want to wear my sister's clothes or my mother's clothes. It seemed disturbing there's you know, a, I wouldn't want anybody to just be wearing my clothes, you know. Um, there's but- a
1: line though that I just, I underlined it because I love it so much. It's such a fantastic line where you said, can I read it out for you? You're talking about the dissatisfaction of wearing other people's clothes. And he said, dressing up was a start. It enabled me to use the only external cues I had to mirror how I felt inside. Yet it was the thing inside that I wanted to express. I was filled with a yearning that could not be quelled by rayon.
0: <laughs> well, that's very eloquent. Yeah, that's the thing. And I, and so when people who care about fashion, sometimes it seems to me that what they like is striking a pose and playing. And I know that that's a thing that brings a lot of people pleasure and more power to them. But for me, you know, it was kind of really never a source of pleasure. I mean, I'm not I mean I'm not saying that dressing up is without pleasure and, you know, the occasionally when I Put on a dress and makeup and and put on the dog, as I like to say. (laughs) You know that's really fun, but it makes me worried when people think, particularly among transgender people, think about transgender people, is that you know you go through this tremendous quest because you want to wear dresses or because you want to play with dolls. And um, you know I want to say, look, wear dresses, play with dolls, but you know that doesn't make you a woman, and you don't need a vagina for that. So. For me, being trance was about the body that I found myself in and the body that I'm in now. Um, and that feels like home. That feels like I'm at peace. If you told me that I'd spend the rest of my life wearing blue jeans and flannel shirts, that would be perfectly fine. And for one thing, I live in Northern England, so that's pretty much all anybody wears up there anyway in the deep country of, of New England in the States. But we do... Play with costumes, out of a, a sense of trying to express ourselves.
1: Mm. Um, well, we all of us do it to a greater or lesser extent.
0: Yeah, and that's and that's fun. But it's I just think when I see somebody who's putting a lot of effort into being beautiful, like all the time, it just makes me feel sorry for them. I just want to say, honey, read a book. Oh my goodness, you don't yeah. you don't need you don't need eyelash glue to read a book. And, you know, and look, I've worn fairy fat eyelashes. They're a ton of fun. They make me look great. But um, being female is about a whole lot more than that. And I, I had this, so you can find this online. There is a, uh, an argument. It's on YouTube. It's a clip from the show, um, I Am Kate, the Caitlyn Jenner show. Oh, yeah. And there's an argument that I'm having with Chris Jenner, which was really fun. It turns out I think Chris Jenner is clearly the smartest member of that family, and she, we were all sitting around, and she looked over at me, and she said, Professor Boylan, we need to get you a stylist. And I admit my feelings were a little bit hurt, because <laughs> I thought I looked pretty good already. And I said, well, what kind of thing is that to say? I need a stylist. I mean, and she's like, you know, well, you, just, you need to just work it a little harder. And I said, why would I do that? I said, surely we're here for something more important than what we look like. And interestingly enough, she said, okay, fair enough. But as a woman, know that the odds are stacked against you.
1: Oh, yeah. And that
0: what um, having a sense of style can do is to bring you a sense of power in a situation where where you don't have power. And so that, that got my attention. Uh, like I said, you can see that exchange on, on YouTube if you want. But I still... It still made me feel a little, a little mm. weird, like, um, because I mean, I know we, I know we all judge each other by the way we look, but some to that, a
1: lesser extent it, j- than others. Let's face it.
0: Yeah, and it, and it, but it's also part of my feeling a little unsettled about fashion is that it's also connected to economics, and so often looking really good or having nice clothes means that you know you were able to buy them and to. Uh, spend the money
1: I mean the history of fashion is all pegged to status if you look at it through I don't know I mentioned this yesterday on stage actually in a different session that was about how we judge women it was actually about tattoos but it was about the history of judging women and whether or not we're getting better at not applying those different kinds of lenses to how men have tattoos and women have tattoos in particular but I was talking about the favourite you know that film with Olivia Colman Mm -hmm. and it is the men who are the ones who are the most over the top dressed in their great big powdered wigs and their rouge and the jeweled right. buckles on their yeah. chairs. Yeah. And it was all about saying, look how rich I am. That's what that was. Yeah. Look how powerful I am. And women did it too. Of course they did. Marie Antoinette. But the history of high fashion is very much pegged to status, where you fit in the world and trying to exert your power and express it visually.
0: Right. And so this is less true now than when I transitioned 20 years ago. But um, for transgender people, being able to make a full medical transition used to also mean was also a function of economics. Now more and more things are covered by insurance, but it used to be if you were going to go through the full presto changeo, that meant that you had lots of money to afford those surgeries and and, all the other stuff, let alone having to buy a whole new wardrobe, which is what I had to do at age 40. So that's the thing we can talk about as well. So interesting,
1: the politics of that.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's funny because... What I had to do access
1: the privilege of access,
0: the privilege of access, and also what is it that I was accessing. So, when I came out and finally was able to dress like the person I felt myself to be, what I was going for, in fact, was kind of where I'd stopped back when I was an adolescent, and all the girls went one way and I went the other, and so the first kind of clothes that I found myself buying as I went through the second adolescence were, you know, kind of teen fashions. And like so what? there I was at, like, age 40 wearing, like, stretchy T-shirts and... Yeah, you know, right. And hippie clothes, because so that's where I was in 1973 when when puberty kicked in for all the all the girls that I knew. And I had to kind of catch up until finally I looked like I was 40, which I was at the time. But I had to kind of work out a lot of things in middle age that a lot of... Yeah. Women and girls miss that bit. Work out when they're teenagers.
1: Can we talk about um, the early days of coming out and talk about Oprah? Because I watched back the footage from when you went on the show, which was 2003. And I was struck. We'd been talking before about how language had changed or you'd been talking on stage mm. about how language had changed and how the context had changed. But so yeah. Even watching back on Oprah then, I felt there's such a... I know it was a long time ago, but the distance of time really felt strong. And then watching you again when you did another show, which is Where Are They Now? Yeah, it's like the conversations right. changed so much, even from Oprah, who's so obviously right on and amazing, but just the way she talked about yeah. the context has shifted.
0: That show was groundbreaking in so many ways because it was one of the first times a transgender person had been allowed to be seen as someone other than um, a freak or someone who was a martyr or something. She really allowed me to present myself as an unexceptional middle-aged woman and you know
1: and context we, wise with your wife married talking yeah. about well
0: the the one the show with my wife was 2005 the right. first time I was on there myself was oh three, and there were some aspects of the show which looking back seem dated and a little awkward hmm. there was a lot of attention to surgeries which um, hmm. i think people have learned now that's kind of private we mm-hmm. don't talk about that there was a lot of attention to sex and you know there was a lot of, of private stuff that it seemed that it seems
1: intrusive now to be saying... Y-
0: y- well, that, you know, transgender people have to, in order to explain themselves, we have to unveil our, some of the things that are really quite private. Yeah. Um, so looking back, that show seems a little dated indeed. However, look, Oprah Winfrey took a somewhat obscure novelist and made a book about transgender experience into a Mainstream. bestseller. And in some ways, I think... I know I have an inflated sense of self-importance, for which you'll have to forgive me. Because
1: you're a writer. Well, I I, I (laughs) I was listening to a writing blog you did uh, last year, and uh, it just was funny, because you were talking about how to be a writer, you have to believe that you're awesome, because otherwise you can't do it, because it's just too tough. Well, there's so many many reasons to
0: say... There's so many reasons to not do it, so you really have to believe in yourself. Well, anyway, having I feel a fragile
1: like, ego thinking you can't do it at the same time is very complicated right. being a writer.
0: Well, <laughs> anyway, I, I hope that the transgender revolution of this millennium began in some small way with the publication of She's Not There and with the two consecutive shows I did um, with mm. Oprah, who, to her credit, treated me with respect and brought people to this book, which is unbelievably, almost 20 years later, still selling. <laughs>
1: talking about how that conversation has shifted I work in fashion I always feel like we are sometimes we're very not progressive for example (laughs) talking about how we judge people on their clothes talking about status all that stuff we can feel like we're in the dark ages but then at the same time fashion can be quite an inclusive forward-thinking nurturing environment it's a place where it's like a magnet for people who are expressive and want to be taken for themselves I think and so fashion gets difference but I Mm -hmm. feel like the rest of the world can be slower to catch up and I want to just raise one of your columns from the New York Times which I found profoundly shocking where you had referenced a writer from the Wall Street Journal who Mm. had written a piece called
0: When Your Daughter Defies Biology.
1: Right. And had talked about this kind of trend towards young people transitioning, and you'd made the connection with like they might take up the ukulele. And I well, was like, yeah. oh my God, can't, or maybe she had. But I was like, really? I thought we had come far, but perhaps we haven't come far.
0: Well, there's this backlash that's now happening. I mean, when I came out as trans, to some degree, the bad thing was that people didn't really know what it was exactly. So I... I had to do a lot of explaining and to some degree apologizing. I think I was very self-conscious and my transition was very much about kind of asking for permission from the people I loved and the people that was that were around me. Now people don't feel they have to do that and now there's a sense we are better known. But the downside of it is that, you know, when I came out, a lot of conservative people didn't know they were supposed to hate us um, because they didn't know that we existed whereas now there are so many trans people there really is a pushback there's a pushback among some older second wave feminists who question transgender women's womanhood. There's a pushback, a blowback from some right-wing people, and the writer that you're referring to is advocating this new... they've come up with a new term that they've essentially invented of rapid-onset gender dysphoria, and they're calling it a social contagion that young people, particularly people born female-bodied, are coming out as trance and transitioning as like it's some sort of crazy dance craze. And I will say, I do know that there are young people who transition for what may be the wrong reasons, and older people as well I guess, but the resistance to transgender identity I think is not grounded in that. It's not grounded in concern. It's grounded in a fear of difference. It's grounded in a dislike of queer people in particular, and also, to be fair, I think some parents, many parents, They like their kids the way they were, and and it's heartbreaking for Mm. them to see their kids change. And I will say... You've written about that too. ...who has... I'm not just a transgender woman. One of my children came out as trans um, when she was 25, and I will say that, in fact, I struggled more than I expected, more than anyone would expect, because, well, for me, I struggled because my life has been hard, and I didn't want my child's life to be hard the way my life was hard. On the other hand, what can you do but open your heart, love your child, and listen to your child? And so my child is trance. I love her. And she's not trance because she's certainly not trying to follow in my footsteps, believe me. And she's not trance because it's some sort of crazy dance craze. She's trance because that's who she is. And I think I have a little more understanding now of how hard it can be for parents Mm. to see a change in the child that you've known. Amazing. And I think I have to admit that I expected people around me to kind of be happy for me when they were still struggling a little bit. And and, and I kind of get that now.
1: But you wrote a really powerful op-ed about that experience, about waving her off after a dinner or something, a Christmas thing. But you then wrote about how you, re- you questioned yourself and realized, as you just said, that your big worry was that you didn't want her to have a hard life but then you wrote this beautiful thing where you said And I've got it here. I made a note of it. So I'm glad you raised it. But you said, I've noticed something fascinating since my child came out. And it reflects the difference between generations over what being trans means. When I began to share my truth almost 20 years ago, I spent a couple of years going around to people apologizing, begging for understanding, begging at times for forgiveness. But my daughter's generation is different. And then you wrote, since she came out, her friends have reacted with joy and happiness for her, even dare I say it, indifference. Their sense is that being trans is just one more way of being human and surely a source of no shame I mean that's yeah. amazing and great um, right?
0: th- I started off writing that piece um, I was I as waving out the window to my daughter as as she drove off and at the time she still very much looked like a boy I and mean, she only just come out and I remember when she waved to me from the street and I thought melodramatically that my son is saying goodbye to me I'm never gonna see my son again and what I realized at the end is in fact I'd had it wrong that in fact it was my daughter was waving hello.
1: Oh, you're a brilliant writer. <laughs> we'll share links, you can read them all. I want to raise one more story, um, One of, another story that you wrote for the New York Times which I found absolutely riveting which is about Caitlin Jenner. You've just mentioned her, you're friends with her and it's about that idea of how can we vote Republican when we know that the man in charge, who I like to call the orange one, and some of those who back him are just so incredibly intolerant and pushing this agenda of hate, actually, we can use that word, I think, especially when we're talking about, for example, immigration, all kinds of issues that he is whipping up a culture of fear. But your piece was around trying to have empathy, to listen to your friends when they have different political views, but also questioning, how can we support politicians who might be making us have better tax breaks or something? I'm thinking about our country, but who are pushing an agenda of inequality and intolerance?
0: Well, you're asking the wrong person. I mean, uh, we can't, I, right? I do wonder if people understood what they were voting for. Mm. I was thinking just the other day of that poem by William Butler Yeats about, um, I think it's September 1913, about the failures of the Irish Revolution, and. There's the line in it, was it for this that the wild goose spread her wings against the tide? I kept thinking about that line that we you know we live in a country now, and this is speaking of America, where six immigrant children have died in U.S. custody since the beginning of the year. Was it for this that you voted for Donald Trump? People like me are now being turned away from homeless shelters and... Doctors are being told it's okay not to provide health care to people like me if you object to my existence on religious ground. Was it for this that you voted for Donald Trump? We live in a country where the president mocks the disabled, where racists now parade with torches. Was it for this that you voted for Donald Trump? Okay, man, you got your tax break. I mean now we have the biggest we have a 22 trillion dollar deficit it's the largest deficit in the history of the country and we have that deficit was it because we saved the environment was it because we built roads and bridges was it because we improved healthcare mm, no it's because we gave a tax break to the wealthiest people in the country plain and simple so okay so we got tax breaks for wealthy people was that worth it is all this other stuff that has made the lives of people who are different, worse. Hmm. Are you willing to pay that price? Uh, That's what I don't understand. And I hope that people will will wake up and understand that what they've done has come at a price.
1: What would you say to Caitlin now, who went to his inauguration? and? Well, Caitlin has has
0: since said that she sees the light, and she is now... uh, She wrote a piece, I think, for the Wall Street Journal, in which she came out against Donald Trump. It reminds me of that... Internet meme. What is it? I can't believe leopards ate my face. (laughs) Woman who voted for leopards eating faces party. I mean, when exactly did surprise set in? But it's, I mean, and again, I'll say Caitlin is a person I've tried to help, a person who I know has a good heart. Mm. But I think Caitlin is a good example of someone who, when you transition, you may, if you're not careful, trail your male privilege behind you. And you need to kind of check that and understand that when it comes to womanhood, what's the song from West Side Story? When you're a jet, you're a jet all the way. (laughs) So if you're going to be a jet, that doesn't mean that you can still celebrate your white ruling class male privilege with abandon. And um, I think Kate appears to have seen the light and it's so good. I hope she... uh, Hawks into that megaphone some more.
1: Mm, We need it. Last one. There's another column which I think you wrote around your birthday. And you were asking, is it my generation that is to blame for electing Trump? And you wrote, in large measure, my generation, will all my tie-dyed brothers and sisters, favoured Trump over Clinton by a considerable margin. How come they swapped all you need is love and decided upon reflection that all we actually need is a giant border fence to keep out the Mexican rapists?
0: Yeah. So and it gets back to fashion because fashion should not mean that you just do whatever goddamn thing other people are doing because it's trendy, you know. If you say all we need is love, if you're just being a hippie because it's cool and you're just pretending, you know, you can just sod off. Don't bother. If you're gonna say all we need is love, you have to live that and Make it your reality. And that's people's beliefs should not be subject to whims and to trends. It shouldn't be that you're a Democrat as long as Obama is in office and now you're a Republican because Trump is in office. You need to have beliefs and a sense of faith that goes down a little deeper than that. Because otherwise you're just a reed blowing around in the wind. And these days... Call for deep roots and strong trees because we're all going to get washed away if we don't.
1: Do you think of yourself as an activist?
0: Well, it's funny. I didn't originally. I thought I'm a writer. I'm a novelist. I'll, I'll write this. I'll write this one book, and then we'll be done. But I am an activist because I, now I understand. I thought that being an activist meant that I would be chaining myself to fences mm. and and walking around with picket signs. Which I mean, I've done that too. But. An activist is someone who fights for what they believe, and one of the ways you fight for what you believe is by writing, and by telling a story. And I think, in some ways, the most compelling way of changing people's hearts is to let them hear your story and to let them understand your humanity and to hear your voice. So, um, so yeah, the hell yes, I'm an activist, but I'm—it's the activism of story.
1: That brings me smartly to my final question. I don't often interview writers on this podcast, but as I am a writer and I love asking writers what they read, the last one I interviewed was actually Vincent Stanley, who is the director of philosophy for Patagonia, but he's also a poet. I asked him what he was reading. So I am reading. She's not there, obviously. What are you reading?
0: I am such a a slut when it comes to literature. I, I read everything. I've been working my way through Remembrance of Things Past um, oh, have by you? By Marcel Proust. Uh, I've every, never read it. I got it. <laughs> got every, it on the shelf. <laughs> every, every other summer, I read one volume. And so this is the summer I'm up to uh, Within a Budding Grove now, I think, is the next one. Or I believe the new title is In the Shadow of Young Girls in Flower. I think that's the new title, which is, you have to say, it's a much better title than Within a Budding Grove. So I'll be reading Proust this summer. I... Let's see. My favorite writers are some of the more experimental writers of my generation. Jennifer Egan, my friend Jenny Egan, is a great writer. George Sanders' Lincoln and the Bardo is probably my favorite novel of the last 10 years. And my dear friend Richard Russo, whose friendship with me is told in She's Not There, has a new novel coming out this summer, which is about three men of his generation which is a slightly older generation, the Vietnam War generation, in love with the same woman. So I'll be reading all of that in the time to come.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. It's time. such an,
0: it's an honor to be here. I'm really grateful.
1: Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm- Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first and best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover Wardrobe Crisis, so I'd love your help with that. Because the more people who switch onto ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you!